Roger Ross Williams has multiple releases this year, an HBO documentary on Donna Summer, the 1619 Project on Hulu, and his fiction debut on the Mexican wrestler Cassandro. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. Roger Ross Williams was the first black director to win an Oscar for his documentary short, Music by Prudence. He went on to make God Loves Uganda that followed American Christian missionaries preaching a toxic homophobia in Uganda that's given momentum to anti-queer legislation and violence. He directed Life Animated about an autistic boy who learned how to communicate through his love of Disney movies. Roger spoke to me about those projects way back on episode 13. Now, seven years have passed, and his career has been flourishing. He started his own production company, One Story Up. This year, he has a bounty of new works coming out. We'll talk about three. The first is the documentary Love to Love You, Donna Summer, that Roger co-directed with Donna Summer's daughter, Brooklyn Sudano. The film doesn't shy away from the singer's complexities, particularly her struggles with religion and sexuality. Here's a clip of the trailer where we hear from Summer, Elton John, and others. The audience would get completely uncontrollable. People would begin to you know, like rip their clothes off and throw them on the stage, bras, underwear. I didn't know it was gonna be like that racy. I remember when I Feel Love came on at Studio 54, you just stopped in your tracks. You thought, what is this? People screamed, just went on and on and on, and you didn't want it to stop. I have a secret life. You're looking at me, but what you see is not what I am. Who is she? My approach to singing, I approach it as an actress. I don't approach it as a singer. And it's really acting. I'm not trying to be me. I came up with Georgia with the... Which just changed the face of music for a while. She was the first female black artist to ever have a video on MTV. She was complicated and struggled with her fame. Donna was trying to navigate being a mother. And the responsibility of that and the weight of that is immense. There's too much fire in me. The second title that Roger and I focus on is The 1619 Project, a six-part adaptation of the best-selling book created by the New York Times journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones. The 1619 Project explores the legacy of blacks in America going back to the year when enslaved Africans were first brought to the country. Finally, the third film we cover is Roger's fiction debut, Cassandro, that stars Gail Garcia Bernal as a queer Mexican wrestler. The story is based on a real figure that Roger first profiled in a short documentary he directed for The New Yorker Presents. His feature, Cassandro, premiered at Sundance to glowing reviews and will come out this fall from Amazon Studios. I sat down with Roger in March in front of a live audience at the CPH Docs Festival in Copenhagen. Sitting in the front row was Brooklyn Sudano. I began by asking Roger how he was drawn to collaborate on a film about her mother, Donna Summer. I grew up um, in the small town in Pennsylvania, and we had a, a hustle competition, and it was a year-long hustle competition, and Every month, someone would win, and they'd advance to the next round, and, and they kept advancing and advancing, and, and I won it. I won the year-long competition. Hey, on. If we queued the hustle right now... I could... Well, it's early, but um, <laughs> if Brooklyn would join me, I could probably do the hustle. 
<laughs> um, and uh, I want to, I feel love to Donna Summer, and I have felt love for Donna Summer ever since then. And uh, Julie Goldman, my longtime producer, um, came to me, and she, I had always wanted to do the Donna Summer film. I thought my first music doc, well, I guess that was the Apollo, but my first music doc about an artist, I really wanted it um, to be about Donna Summer, so I read the book, and then I was like, how am I gonna get to Donna? I don't know, any, I don't know how to get to Donna Summer. And then Julie just called me one day, and she goes, guess what? The Donna Summer people contacted me, your dream's gonna come true. And then I met Brooklyn, and I totally fell in love with Brooklyn, and we were totally, we, you know, I've never co-directed anything with anyone, I'm, um, and, but we just jived, and she said to me, um, I don't want this to be a cookie-cutter documentary. I want this to be completely honest. I want to go to places that are uncomfortable for me and my family. Um, and I was like, all right, I'm in. Well, that is everything. I mean, I think we're going through a moment right now of, uh, of biographical documentaries, uh, uh, musicians, other kinds of celebrities, uh, and, and so on. And the, I think, you know, the first thing you ask about it is how willing are they to go to, uh, to some of the more complicated places? Yeah. Um, you know, many of the, of those in this documentary, uh, Brooklyn's family, uh, Donna's manager, uh, Joyce Bogart, who owned the record label with Neil Bogart, they had never spoken to the press, they had never done this sort of in-depth interview. Some of them never, and they were really reluctant, but Brooklyn, she spent months talking them into it. Um, it was tough. Even Donna's ex-boyfriends, even the, she, she had one notorious ex-boyfriend who, you know, beat her and was abusive, and he even did an interview, and it was a powerful interview. So. Getting, you know, getting to those people uh, was a, a lot of was a lot of work, but um, thanks to Brooklyn and her, she's very convincing <laughs> and beautiful. <laughs> so a couple of the themes that uh, run through this film was Donna Summer's relationship to the gay community that was so uh, integral to the rise of uh, of disco, and also the meaning of Christianity uh, in her life. These are two themes that feel uniquely suited for, uh, for you to, to think about. I mean, can, you know, can you talk about your own relationship and history with those, yeah. thinking about those themes? Yeah, well, I made God Loves Uganda, and I made God Loves Uganda because I grew up in the black church, the illegitimate son of the pastor, and I struggled with, you know, I was, I was thrown out of the, the church for being gay, you know, ostracized from the church. My mother was ostracized from the church for having an affair with the, with the pastor. And so it, I, it was so painful um, that I had to go to the most painful place in the world where they were actually killing gay people by hanging in Uganda. Um, and I just have to say that yesterday, finally, the anti-gay bill was passed, sadly. And I saw Museveni yesterday on CNN saying that it is Uganda's goal to wipe out 
every gay person in that, in that country. Yesterday on CNN, the, the, it just passed the parliament. After and years after your film. And years out. after my film. So it's a very painful, you know, and dangerous place. It was a very dangerous sort of time for me making that film, being in Uganda where they were hunting gays. Uh, so I wanted to, so I always want to go to those places because I want to go to those places of personal pain because um, I be believe great art comes out of that. Um, and so Donna's struggle with the church being abused by the, her pastor at 11 um, and her running away from the church to, to Germany, escaping um, and finding herself. And, but, but the church never let go of her. She's always had that. And there's this, then she becomes this, this huge sex symbol, the, the you know, first lady of love. And there was always a conflict and that, that makes for great material, doesn't it? The conflict there. And she struggled with that. And then in the end of her life, came back to that, made the unfortunate comment of God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Uh, the gay community, including she, she said this on stage in a concert, as documented uh, in your film. Yeah. yeah, the gay community, including me, turned away from her. Um, but then there was additional comments that were attributed to her that she didn't say that AIDS was a plague, and she sued the, the magazine that printed that and one that settled that lawsuit. And uh, I think that. Her music speaks to gay people because the, we can feel the pain. It's, there's something in her voice, and, it, and it, it's probably because of the abuse and everything she suffered. There's, some, there's a power and an emotion in her voice that you can, Elton John says it in the film, that you feel on the dance floor. You, we felt it, and we connected with her. And so that connection never went away, and, and I still feel that connection. And... I think a lot of the gay community now has come back to Donna's music, including popular, you know, stars like Beyonce and uh, in her in Renaissance and Summer Renaissance on her album. So you said you had a moment in your own fandom of uh, of feeling alienated uh, and let down uh, by her, and then what was your own path back to her? Um, my my path was through the music. Really, you know, I I started, you know, just listening to her music, um, and I realized how much joy she had given me as a young man. How I felt on the dance floor, how I felt in those hustle competitions, and I just went. I was like, I can't let this go because of one mistake, because of a, a comment. And I have to forgive, I have to have forgiveness. And um, I just came back to her. And, uh, and I think a lot, of the, a lot in the community have had that same experience. There's um, David Magdell. <laughs> it's so funny, I interviewed David Magdell, who's a well-known publicist. Uh, and you know, he had his experiences, his partner um, passed away to HIV AIDS and to, um, Winter, winter melody. He wanted to play Donna Summer as he died, and died in David's arms to Winter Melody, which is why I interviewed David. 
And so, but David also turned away and David has also come back to, to Donna and her music and his love of her music. So this is one of several projects as I uh, described in the introduction. Um, a few years ago, you started a production company uh, to, I presume, kind of help you, you know, grow what you were doing and, uh, and expand what you're doing. Can you talk um, about the motivations to start that company and, and what you think that meant as a transition point in your career? Yeah. Um, you know, I had production companies calling me, trying to hire me as director, and I thought um, I should be the one <laughs> owning the company. And I started One Story Up with, my, with a long-term friend from uh, 30 years, uh, Jeff Martz, who was at ABC. He was producing, he was executive producer of Nightline, and he was not liking working for, you know, the news and the man and the corporate world. And I said, come to the indie film world. So he, um, we started the company, and I really started the company on this sort of idea that I wanted to give opportunities to BIPOC filmmakers um, and, by, and crew um, because... I didn't have those opportunities, even after winning the Oscar, nothing. I was sleeping on Jeff's couch, actually. Um, and so when Doors, after Life Animated, I felt like that's when Doors, I was like, okay, he, he got a second nomination, so he must be okay. So like, so then I, people started calling me and I started getting opportunities and then the, everyone started coming to me and I was like, oh wait, I'm a, I'm a gatekeeper now. And that was, that was like, I went from an outsider to like, and, and then I was, then I got elected to the, I ran for um, governor of the doc branch of the academy. And I didn't think I was gonna get it, but I thought, why not? I'll, I'll, I'll try, I'll run. And I won. And that was like a shock. And then I walked into the, um, the first, the, the academy's run by a board of governors. And there's 17 branches in the, in the, I know you know this, but I'm just playing it to you. There's 17 branches in the academy, and each branch elects three governors. And those governors are the board that runs the organization. Every aspect of the organization hires the CEO. It's like a real board. Board meetings every month, it's a lot of work. Um, the first time I walked into that boardroom, uh, I think I was the second or third black person ever elected to the board of governors. Uh, there was Steven Spielberg, governor of the uh, director's branch, and Tom Hanks, governor of the acting branch. And I was really intimidated, of course. And I was like, well, I could be intimidated or I could like kick the door down for others. And, 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 I, could, and I could do that by changing my own branch, which allowed me to, um, because of the A2020 is initiative, there was Oscar So White when no black people, no people of color were nominated. And I can't remember what year that was. And the Academy did an initiative because they had to, to invite women and people of color. So they let, they let us have an unlimited number. So I could just bring in droves and droves and droves. And I sort of doubled the doc branch membership and invited international members, People from Africa, there were no, there was like three, not seven people from Latin America, uh, Latin America. I mean, it was, it was crazy because it was all men. I got gender parity. Um, I made that a priority. 
Is it the only branch that has gender parity? It's the, yes. Of the 17 branches. It's, yeah. Well, there's, it's the first branch to go, because there's certain branches like hair and makeup that's. That have traditionally been. Yeah. Um, but it's the first branch to get gender parity, to go from non-gender parity to gender parity. So I got to change my branch and therefore change the, the doc, the doc, then it's reflected in the nominees. It's reflected in the nominee. I mean, I think a film like uh, The Mole Agent from Chile last year, I don't think well, would have been nominated without uh, uh, the, the greater internet nationalization or the house made of splinters this year um, that happened while you were uh, on the board of governors. Yeah. I think I diverged way off. Yeah, we did. So uh, you know, divergence was that you were having these new opportunities that, uh, that you know, suddenly put you in a position uh, of power instead of being yeah. supplicant always. Yeah. Um, and so once you, uh, once you established your company, you know, well, what did you find? How the company really took off is um, it really took off uh, when, George, when George Floyd and when there's the racial reckoning in America, and uh, then the buyers started calling me, and they said, "We never thought thought about who gets to tell the story." And for so long, um, people have been helicoptering into the black community or communities of color and telling these very depressing stories, uh, and black filmmakers and other filmmakers of color weren't getting to tell their own stories. And they were often stuck in like reality television. They weren't given the opportunities. So I had an opportunity to educate the buyers and to, and not just the directors, not just bringing in directors, but also from top to bottom, the, the PAs, the the APs, the assistant editors, the editors, the entire, you know, team. And I think um, one of the first productions where that happened was I did Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me um, for HBO. And we had our first Zoom meeting and we looked out into the Zoom meeting and every single person working on that massive production was a person of color. And I started to cry. And we all started to cry because we had never seen, we'd never seen that before. We had all been isolated in our own little worlds. And there we were working on this together. And it was a beautiful experience. And then I realized, wow, this is really powerful. And I've just done it over and over and over again. Um, we just, we put last year, we had this film, Master of Light, which is a first-time filmmaker, first-time ed black editor, first-time black DP, uh, black associate editor. Uh, we won the grand jury at South by Southwest, won the grand jury at San Francisco, uh, first-time uh, prize at Sheffield. Uh, they're all for, for say, incredible work, but once they were given the opportunity to, to, to shine and to... To, to be artisan, to feel completely free, it was independently funded, is mind-blowing. So I just keep, you know, there's a filmmaker, you know, Nadia Hallgren, who I said, who is a well-respected camera person, and she wanted to make a, she wanted to move to directing, and I said, and she wanted, she had a short idea, and I went to Netflix, and I was like, you have to do her short. 
And they said, okay, if you oversee it. We did her short after Maria. And then she went on to direct the Michelle Obama. And then we just did Civil with her with, about Ben Crump, a civil rights lawyer in America for Netflix that just won the NAACP Image Award, Best Documentary. So it's a career that's blossomed. Yeah. In, uh, so it's amazing watching these career, you know, helping these filmmakers who just didn't have the, those opportunities and watching their careers blossom. I mean, I feel like it might make a documentary itself someday to tell the story of what happened this, in the summer of 2020 uh, in those boardrooms as uh, you know, people were uh, spinning around. They were, they were calling me, you know, like, who do we call? We'll call, Roger's the governor, we'll call Roger. And they would say, can you educate us? It was really fascinating. So I had to educate them, you know, heads of... Can you talk about, you know, how you felt about that role? Because I, I know that summer there were a lot of, you know, people who didn't want to be the educators. Uh, uh, you know, why should I be your educator? Uh, of Yeah, but I was okay with that role. Somewhat, somebody has to do it. You know, and if if I chose to be in a position of of power, if I chose to run for office and lead, then I have to also be the educator. Um, one last question on on that moment. I think there was a lot of concern in summer of twenty twenty. Okay, for. This moment, we've got people's ear. For this moment, people are trying to uh, sign up projects. Like, how long is this going to last? You know, do we have six months? Do we uh, have a year? Uh, what have you seen in, in that? It's over. The, 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 it, what did it, how long did it last? Maybe a couple of years. And um, they've already forgotten. Um, and... Uh, the racial reckoning is over and we're back to, you know, just waiting for the next insurrection. Uh, so, um, you know. Can you elaborate on how you see that? It's just the interest now from buyers is not in everyone. It was like a run. It was like they went to the black aisle of the supermarket and they just grabbed everything they could get. <laughs> and they're like, oh, we got all this black stuff. Great. And now they're like, what are we going to do with all this stuff? Now we don't, we don't know. We have all this black content. We don't, where we, they don't, they're like, now we have to use it. And they're, and so they've over, they've in, over indulged themselves. Isn't that a shame? In black content. And now there's a, there's a way, there's like a kind of a backlash. And, and now it's not even a, it's a backlash, and you know, there's a whole issue in the whole docs space in that it's celebrities, you know, true crime, and that's it. I want to come back to that. Uh, first, let's talk about a project that comes out of this moment, or is, or helped drive this moment, even, which is the 1619 uh, project. Yeah. Um, <laughs> came out in, started out as a New York Times magazine. Uh, full issue in 2019, the 400th anniversary um, of, of 1619, and uh, you know, uh, has taken off in an incredible way in the culture with also an incredible backlash. 
um, uh, against it uh, in the United States. Talk about the evolution of, uh, of bringing that project from a, a book into a series that you did for Hulu. Yeah. Well, it started out as a, a series of articles in the New York Times Magazine that was uh, won the Pulitzer Prize, hugely acclaimed, um, written by different um, historians and academics led by Nicole Hannah-Jones, the New York Times uh, reporter, education reporter until then. And she went to her editors and she said, um, I learned in school that the true founding of America was in 1619 when this first slave ship arrived on the shores of Comfort, Virginia. And black people have built America and black people are the true keepers of democracy because we fight for democracy, the civil rights movement, the Black Lives Matter movement. We, we keep keep the, try to keep the country to the standards that they say they um, believe in, in the, you know, uh, Declaration of Independence, but is, you know, as we know, that was written by slave owners. Um, so the 1619 launched in the New York Times, and it was a phenomenon, and you could not get a copy of it anywhere. It sold out um, many times over. And then the New York Times released the 1619 podcast, and within the first couple of weeks, it was 40 million listens in the podcast. Uh, it became a huge deal. And then the New York Times decided they were going to turn it into a doc series. Uh, they put it out there in the marketplace. A um, bunch of people went after it, um, including me. I was too small to actually um, compete with uh, the studios that were going after the project. Uh, Lionsgate um, actually made the deal. Uh, they bought in Oprah Winfrey, Miss Oprah Winfrey, and um, then they, uh, then the New York Times called me and said, would you, would one story up, uh, produce the series? I met with Nicole, we hit it off. Uh, met with Oprah, we hit it off. And we were off. And then we started to develop it, and I started to develop it really closely with Nicole and Oprah. And we would do bi-weekly brainstorming sessions. It's great to brainstorm with Oprah um, and Nicole. They're both so brilliant. And then, um, and then we pitched, and then me and Nicole and Oprah pitched to, to and when and you pitch with Oprah, you pitch to the, you know, the heads of the companies. It's like, you know, so we pitched to Iger. You know, and, and then Oprah would open up with Maya Angelou and all this, and she would throw it to me, and I'd give the creative vision. So I, Oprah would open, she would like, and I would like, I was like, oh my God, I have to follow. Oprah was your opening act. Oprah was my, Oprah was my opening act. <laughs> uh, uh, and um, and uh, Disney won the, the project, and we started working with um, Disney and Onyx Collective, um, and uh, it was a long haul, you know, it's original reporting. So we were basically, it's divided into the way the 1619 breaks down and democracy, capitalism, music. Uh, these are the episodes of the these series. Are the episodes. Kind of like yeah. Big, Six, heady episodes. ideas. Yeah. 
So in those brainstorming uh, sessions, you've got super successful book of essays. You've got a successful podcast that, that has adapted this. What were the things that you were trying to do to transfer this to, to television? And, you know, were you, were you trying to do something unique or were you just trying to do the best version of what already existed so that people who don't listen to podcasts and don't read books could see it on television? What was yeah. the mission? The most important thing was, was really for people to understand that the 1619 is about now. It's not about the past. It's about what's happening now. So for, for democracy, what is happening now is, uh, is elections are being, you know, people are, being, are not being voting. And so we follow, you know, in Georgia, and where is that happening most? In Georgia. So in democracy, it's about following people fighting for, again, Black people, Black women fighting for the right to vote. That is the rights being taken from them. So it was really about how things, you know, haven't changed. So every episode, and, and once we focused it on, every episode is about now. In capitalism, it's about the um, unionization of Amazon and following the workers in, in um, uh, Queens, uh, Staten Island. And so, so it's- In a way, it was about trying to find stories unfolding in real time and use them to animate these larger ideas. Yes. Yeah. 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 For a long time, the move from being a documentary maker to a fiction maker uh, was a difficult one. Um, You know, there's a lot of uh, very esteemed documentary filmmakers who, you know, uh, tried that and for different reasons. Uh, it didn't work uh, for them. Recently, there's been um, more um, hopeful stories uh, about uh, people making that uh, transition, and um, and I feel like uh, yours is one. Uh, judging by the reviews that um, that came out of uh, Sundance for Cassandro, uh, this film started as a short documentary uh, that you made uh, for the uh, for the brief season of The New Yorker uh, Presents uh, when it was on Amazon. Um, talk about the, doc- the short documentary and how it launched into being a feature. Yeah. yeah. Um, the New Yorker uh, Kahani uh, approached me and my producer, Julie Goldman, and, um, to do the short. Uh, someone else was doing it, and they dropped out, and she said, oh, it's this it's this really interesting story because it's one of the most read stories, and I think it was 2016 in The New Yorker, um, about a cross-dressing uh, lucha libre wrestler who lives in El Paso and Juarez and wrestles in drag on his own terms and wins because uh, as an exotico, and exoticos are uh, characters in lucha libre um, played by straight men that are playing feminine gay men that get beaten, beaten up. So it's just extreme homophobia, but he turns it on its head and, and wins. So I went to El Paso to begin shooting with the real Cassandro. And the first day I was there, um, I, was, I met him and I was just blown away by his energy, his positivity, 
his story, he was so, was so inspiring. He was so inspiring on so many levels. He was this very spiritual person. And I just, and I said, that night, um, the crew and I went to a tequila bar. And I said, um, this is going to be my first scripted feature. And we started, you know, when you have that conversation over tequila, what do you talk about? Oh, who's going to play Cassandra? And I said, Gael Garcia Bernal. It has to be Gael Garcia Bernal. Bad education. No one else can play this role. So then that was it. I made it my mission to do the film. So I called my agent and I said, told him, and he said, um, that sounds amazing. And he, I remember um, it was this Alexis Garcia at the time, and he said, at WME, and he said, this film will be made. I'm 100%. I, I, he's a veteran. He's the head of the film at fifth season now. And I was like, really? And so I didn't know how I was going to actually do it because I knew nothing about scripted filmmaking or screenwriting. So I called my editor, for, um, my, David Teague, who edited Life Animated with me. And I said, edit, because in the in, in documentary, you write your documentary in the edit room. Editors are really writers. So I said, have you ever been interested in writing a screenplay? And he's like, oh, it's, my, it's my dream to write a screenplay. I, you know, I, I've been thinking of trying to make the transition to write, to be a screenwriter. And I was like, okay, well, let's, you want to write a screenplay together? And we had such an amazing collaboration on Life Animated. He said, absolutely. So we put together an outline and went into Amazon um, Studios and pitched it to Ted Hope, who was the head of Amazon Studios. And by the time I'd gotten to the parking garage, they had already called WME and made an offer for a screenwriting deal and a directing deal. So, <laughs> I know, crazy, right? And, um, uh, but then I had to figure, we had to figure out how to write it. So then I was like, oh, what do I do now? So I, I was like, oh, I'm going to call the head of the screenwriting lab at Sundance, because I'm very, been on the advisory board at Sundance, very involved. And so I called Michelle Satter, and I said, um, can we have lunch? And I went to lunch with Michelle, and I said, Michelle, um, I want to do the screenwriting lab. And she's like, Okay. And I, and, um, I said, so, so um, what do I do? I, we, I've, I've written an outline. Can I just send that to you? And she's like, no, you have to submit a screenplay. And I was like, I have to write a whole screenplay to get into the lab? And she's like, yeah. I was like, well, how long does that take? And she said, she said um, well, think of it like this. How long does it take you to get to a rough cut of one of your documentaries? And I was like, that takes me like, a, like forever, a year, months, many, at least six months or more a year. And she's, she's like, yeah, that's, that's, that. And I was like, oh, shit. So David and I um, went to work and we wrote the first draft. It was terrible. We submitted it to the screenwriting lab and it was rejected. And I was like, how dare you reject me? I'm the poster child of Sundance. I actually called, um, called uh, well, I won't say me. I called people up like screaming at them. <laughs> like how dare and um but it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me because then I went back to the drawing board and we made it 
better. And we rewrote it and we got into the screenwriting lab eventually. Um, at the screenwriting lab, it was transformative because the best screenwriters in the world um, help you write your screenplay. And uh, in and I had we had some um, Doug Wright who won the Pulitzer Prize, who's an amazing screenwriter and playwright. Um, Doug McGrath, who recently passed away, um, Barry Jenkins, all, all, just incredible, incredible. Um, and it transformed the screen the screenplay. But it didn't get it to the place that it became. That happened in the director's lab. Because once you, out of the 12 screenwriters, out of 12,000 are selected for the screenwriting lab. So it's really hard to get in there. Eight of those are invited to the director's lab, where you go for five weeks to the, to the resort, and you shoot five scenes from your screenplay you bring the you bring actors uh, that you um, are, that you cast that come with you for the five weeks. Um, I bought Javier Munez, who was Alexander Hamilton on Broadway after Lin Manuel and Salinas Leah from Orange Is the New Black. You get really good actors because they want to come to the lab, and um, we work through the material. And that material must stay on the mountain. No one ever sees it except for the people at the lab. And if, each week, ten of the greatest directors. Uh, come in and advise you who started at the lab and the and you're it's so you're so nervous because all the great some of the, the greatest directors of our time have started their films at the lab quentin tarantino the cohen brothers paul thomas anderson um d Rees, uh barry jenkins all started at the lab and i had um Redford takes one of the eight, and he, he's their advisor. And this is probably the last time he did this, and he chose my film. So I had Redford on set with me, in rehearsal with me, in the edit room with me, and he was amazing. And the, my, the most memorable thing um, is that there's a big sex scene in Cassandro, and Redford, I was really nervous. So I was like, how do I do a sex scene? And he... He said it's all about the storytelling and the choreography. He drew it out. He storyboarded my, Bob Redford storyboarded my sex scene. And I have it framed in my office hanging on the wall. <laughs> well, after hearing about all these good things came to you, I'm glad that you told the story of being kicked down a little bit so uh, that we don't just totally uh, end no. the, uh, it's hard. Yeah. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. And, and even with the lab and, the, and, the, and how hard. I cried at the lab many times. We all cried. It's part of the process. You break down. They break you down and then build you up. You know, you, 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 they're your first couple scenes, disastrous. You go in there and you show it to, I call it the tribunal. You go in and it's the 10 big David Lowry and all these hotshot directors. And they're sitting there and they, and they watch your scene. And they're like, this is disaster. This is terrible. And you're like, <laughs> and you go out and your actors are waiting outside and they're holding you and the other filmmakers are out there and they're like, I, I, they said it to me too. And like, and then, and then, but your third or fourth, you started, you start to find your voice. And by third or fourth, I remember my third one, I went in there and it was um, Christine Lottie. She, she started crying. It was a sex scene. She started crying, and Redford said, this is the perfect scene. 
And I was, I cried with joy. I cried again. And I went out and the actors had, they bought me flowers. We were jumping up and down and hugging. And I was like, this is an incredible experience. But nothing prepares you for actually making the movie because that is the most difficult thing you'll ever do in your life is to make a, is to make a film. 49 days shoot. So you're making this film in Mexico, you know, at a time when we're all thinking harder about authenticity of where stories come from. So as two guys in New York City writing this story about uh, Mexican wrestling, like how did you find your way into that and know, and know that you weren't doing uh, wrong by it? Well, for me, it's a story about acceptance and finding acceptance and accepting yourself as a gay man. No one knows that better than me. Uh, rejection as a gay man, no one knows that better than me. And it's a father-son story. Um, and it's really my story. Um, you know, we took creative license. Um, Cassandro's estrangement from his father, and he was the illegitimate child of his father. Uh, that wasn't true, but that's my, my story. Uh, his relationship with his mother, this sort of is the most important person in his life. Um, so you, I put a lot of myself into that. I took, you know, it's great because it's fiction. You can, it's, you're, it's not documentary. And once you free, once I was free of that, I was like, wow, I can take my most, you know, complex, painful things and put it into this screenplay. And, it's, and it, it doesn't matter where it is. It's all those elements are my the elements that I'm struggling with and dealing with and wanting to explore in my work. thank Roger Ross Williams for speaking with me, and thanks to CPH Docs in Copenhagen for hosting this conversation. You can watch Love to Love You, Donna Summer on HBO and The 1619 Project on Hulu. This fall, look out for Cassandro coming from Amazon Studios. Pure Nonfiction has recently started two email newsletters. One is Producer's Notebook, where documentary producers discuss the latest developments in their field. The second is Editor's Notebook, where documentary film editors take us into their creative process. You can sign up to receive those newsletters for free at purenonfiction.net. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan, marketing manager Bella Racklin, our intern, Sahai John, and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. Follow us on Instagram at Pure Nonfiction. Fiction.